Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, would you turn back with me to Acts chapter 6? We're going to continue learning about the historical record of the early church in this chapter. You know, it's really a short amount of time. I know we've been here together in Acts for probably, it's probably going on two months now, but really what we've been covering in five chapters has maybe been a couple days to a week. Um, has not been that long of a time period. And in that short, uh, brief life of the church so far, it's been met with some pretty big obstacles, hasn't it? When we've gone through the last five chapters, there was persecution from those outside of the church. There was a threat of temptation and sin inside the church. I mean, Satan has done all he could do to obstruct the church in their mission. And we see them face another obstacle in this passage this morning. But we've also seen that with the Holy Spirit's leading, They've overcome these obstacles, and they do that here as well. As we wrap up chapter 6, we're going to be introduced to one of the early church leaders, Stephen. In fact, chapter 6 is 15 verses. They're, they're a pretty important link from the first five chapters to the whole rest of, of the book. Um, we, we see a link from Peter leading the early church, and we're going to transition in, in a few weeks, in a couple chapters, to the Apostle Paul kind of moving in to help lead the church as well. And what happens in this chapter and in the next two, it's also an important transition from um, the gospel being spread in Jerusalem out to areas beyond that, ultimately um, to the whole world. Let's pray before we study it. God, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to reveal its truth to us. Um, we might have read this passage many times, and um, you've taught us things before, but I pray that you'd uh, help us see with fresh understanding the truth that you have for us in here. And of course, not just so that we could uh, leave this sanctuary more informed, but ultimately it's our desire that we're transformed. Uh, our minds are renewed by your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, would you uh, have him do that for us this morning? If we promise you that we will respond to whatever it is that you show us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the first four verses, uh, the record is where the church begins to experience division. There's a problem that arises. We learn of the specific problem that was beginning to cause division within the church in these first two verses of chapter 6. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, the devil had tried to halt the success of the early church in their mission. First of all, by persecution... That didn't work. The gospel went out. More people got saved. Um, so then he tried to impede the church's progress from within. We saw that in the situation a few weeks ago with Ananias and Sapphira. And then now here in chapter 6, Satan hopes um, to divide and conquer by raising one group of Christians against another. And there are some dynamics at play here that we might not fully understand 
um, because this occurred in a different time and in a different culture. Verse 1 tells us that the church was accomplishing their mission and that it continued to go well. It says when the number of disciples was multiplied, that's just really, that's been the case ever since the church was formed back in Acts 2. But then verse 1 also says there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. And the reason that a murmuring arose, there was this complaint born out of dissatisfaction, was because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So here's the situation. Among all of these Jewish converts to Christianity, um, there were some who were ethnically Jewish, but they had never lived in Israel, and they didn't speak Hebrew. Uh, They spoke whatever language. nation they were from. They were called the Grecians. Um, Their main language was probably Greek. And they were looked down on by those ethnically Jewish Christians who were from Israel and whose main language was Hebrew or maybe Aramaic. Now, it is true that those who lived outside of Israel, most of the time, they did not hold as strictly to the Mosaic law uh, as those who lived in Israel. So we could possibly see this as a form of cultural discrimination or bias, um, but it would probably be more accurate to see this division stemming from perspectives on standards. Um, the Greeks, those ethnic Jewish converts to Christianity, they did not live their faith out or practice their faith according to the strict legalistic convictions of the Hebrews, those ethnically Jewish but now Christian members of the church. And not only was this division a problem, but so was the problem that gave birth to it. Whether intentional or not, the end of verse 1 says that their widows were neglected in the daily administration. Now, it doesn't say that they felt like they were. It says that they were. And the church was to take care of widows in need, especially those who are active in the church and who are serving in the church And here, some were being neglected. Now, um, this kind of bias or discrimination, it has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Um, Cultural, or whether it's about personal convictions, about any gray areas that Scripture may not clearly speak to, um, we must not allow our own personal convictions to dictate how we're going to treat people, how we're going to love them, how we're going to serve them. But that's what was going on here, and it needed to be addressed so that division wouldn't be maintained in the church. It needed to be addressed quickly and properly and biblically. And so the apostles began to devise a solution. Verse 2, it tells us that the 12 apostles, who who at this point, they they were the (laughs) exclusive leadership in the church, and what's right now, it's an incredibly large body of believers in the thousands. Well, they knew that they shouldn't. They knew that they couldn't ensure that this problem was addressed quickly and properly and biblically on their own. And here's why. Because it would take them away from the ministry that God had called them to. They needed to focus on communicating God's word to people publicly and privately, and prayer. That was their calling from God. Now, if they were distracted from it, if they they were detoured by it, the church would suffer. The church's mission would be negatively affected. And so we learn in verses 3 to 4 that they come up with a very practical answer. 
Let's read it. Verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, this is what the apostles tell the church. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, who are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here's the solution. They tell the entire church body, all those thousands of believers, verse 2 describes them as a multitude of disciples. Verse 3 describes them as the brethren. They tell the entire church body, they instruct them, look out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who we can appoint over this business. And what's recorded here is, is a very important advance in the organizational structure of the church, how God wants it to be administered, um, followed by an advance in geographical spread of the gospel and the church. And while some people think that th this is not referring to the creation of the office of a deacon in the church, there is no direct statement here in this passage that this is the beginning of the diaconate. Um, boy, it's sure what's described here. And if this passage is not describing that, well, then we have no record of when God began to institute that. We just have later passages in the New Testament that talk about the qualifications of a deacon or who might have served as a deacon or what they are supposed to do. I believe it is. Um, the Greek word diakonia, uh, it's mentioned here. It's where we get our word for deacon twice in this chapter. Have you ever heard the phrase, necessity is the mother of invention? Well, there was necessity here. <laughs> Division was creeping up very early on in the church, and the necessity was for the church's leadership to expand and the service by leadership to expand. This is not just some invention of man to handle things. No, led by the Holy Spirit, both the apostles and the entire church body, um, they saw that there was a need here. And led by the Holy Spirit, they all addressed that need. That's how the church should work. Amen how the church should work. This would allow the apostles, those who are leading the church, to do what verse 4 describes, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, we ought not take this as these leaders having some superior attitude or trying to avoid this aspect of ministry altogether. That's not what's described here. Um, they're calling to and their need to busy themselves with prayer and with the ministry of the word, it teaches us, especially us, it teaches us how energetically church leaders, and we don't have apostles, right? We have pastors. How energetically, how consuming it should be to preach and to pray the way God has called a pastor to and expects him to. Uh, the Scottish pastor and Reformation leader John Knox, he once said, I have never feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. I referenced that quote a few years ago, not at this church, at a, at a different one. And um, this, this sweet old lady, she told me after the service, well, she grabbed my hand, she said, don't worry, honey, it'll get easier, you'll, you'll do better. And I know what she meant, um, but it hasn't, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't. Um, I tremble as I study, I tremble as I type out, the sermon, I, I tremble as I fine-tune it, as I deliver it, uh, each time, every one. And I should. Look, look, every pastor should. Behind this pulpit, in a very real way, our words are perceived as an oracle of God. And we're handling the living and active word of, of God. And we must handle it properly. 
And we must communicate it powerfully. And doing that properly and powerfully, it takes a devotion. It requires uh, giving ourselves continually to it and to prayer. Uh, a young preacher once said to Pastor Donald Barnhouse, he was the pastor at New York City's 10th Presbyterian Church, he once said to him, uh, Pastor, I, I, I give the whole world to be able to preach like you do. And Pastor Barnhouse looked him straight in the eye and he replied, good, because that's what it will cost you. So can I just take a moment here to say thank you to this church and to each one of you, um, because how this church functions and because of each one of you here, you allow me to do this. <laughs> you allow me to do this. Um, whether it's for me or for anyone else in years ahead, don't ever stop. Do it God's way. And we see God's way. The church electing deacons in verses 5 through 8. Here's their response in verses 5 and 6. They, they got a solution that's suggested by the apostles. And what does verse 5 say? It pleased the whole multitude, the entire church body. So when we consider this response and uh, by the leadership and by the church body, it really was a wonderful and Holy Spirit-filled way to address this problem. They didn't throw the complainers out. Um, they didn't divide into two congregations. They didn't shun whoever was not on their side in the issue. They didn't form a committee and just talk the thing to death. I would have to think that there might have been some people in the church body who, maybe somebody who suggested, why don't the apostles just handle this whole matter themselves? But, but instead, they delegated, <laughs> and they ended up bringing more people into the ministry, and that's always a good thing. Verse 5 gives us a list of seven men that they chose who had the qualifications that were listed back in verse 3. It says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Why seven? The magnificent seven. Well, we got nine. Are we, are we in the wrong here because we got nine? I don't know what we call them. The nifty nine, maybe. Why seven? Well, we're not told why they chose seven. It could be because culturally that, that was something that Jewish people had in their little small communities. They would have like a town council of seven. So just... It may seem like a good number. It also might have been um, so that each one of those guys could handle, you got Monday, you got Tuesday, you got, you got seven. I mean, it might have been something as simple as that. Uh, the number's not a mandate, so don't, let's not get hung up about it. Uh, and we don't know much about these men. It's really only the first two, Stephen and, and Philip, that we have more details offered about who they were and what they did in this chapter and the next. Um, but we do know that they all had Greek names, and so they may have been specifically chosen to ensure that any discrimination toward that demographic, it'd be addressed, it'd be taken care of. Now I want you to notice verse 6. It says the congregation, the whole church, they chose these individuals, and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. A different kind of laying their hands on them that occurred in the last chapter when they were arrested. All right, um, the, the church chose them, and then the church leadership prayed over them, and laid their hands on them. Uh, look, if that is not descriptive of a congregational form of government, I, the Bible's way, I don't know what it is. Uh, we might call what went on here in verse 6 a deacon ordination. It's a commissioning to service. 
It's a bestowing of authority by the church leadership on behalf of the church to these individuals to handle the matters that they're commissioned to oversee. And the response here from everyone, from every part of the church, it was the right thing. Uh, Those with a complaint, they did the right thing. They made the issue known. (laughs) They didn't uh, just get upset and stew about it or gossip about it. They trusted the solution that the church agreed upon. Those of the other party, they did the right thing. They recognized this was a legitimate problem. And they also trusted the solution that the church agreed upon in their response. The seven chosen men did the right thing. They said, yes, we'll do it. Yes, we will serve. They joyfully and willingly answered the call to serve the Lord and his church. And those in the leadership, they did the right thing. They responded to this issue without distracting themselves from their central task. And this potentially divisive problem was diffused. And look what happened according to verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And even a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. That's the result. If you ask me, this is a big win. What happened here? The word of God increased. Isn't that both what Satan didn't want and exactly what the entire church has as their mission for the word of God to increase the number of disciples to, to multiply greatly. And then check this out, even to the point where a great company of priests came to faith in Jesus Christ. They believed. That's a big win. That's what happens when we do things God's way, when we pray for and when we obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when pastors pastor and deacons Deacon and the whole church works together to do what God has called them to do. Um, Satan's strategy failed here. He tried to divide the church. They came together. His second strategy failed. He tried to distract the leadership from their focus on ministry that God gave them, but the church came together to prevent that from happening. And we've got to do things God's way because as soon as one victory over an attack from Satan is accomplished, we can expect another one coming. We see that in verses 8 through 15. And here the church elicits defamation. Look at the accusers. The first deacon listed in verse 5 was Stephen. It says he's a man full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost. Described in verse 8, Stephen full of faith, or some versions say grace and power, and did great wonders and miracles among the people. So from what we learn in the, the rest of this chapter, um, not only was Stephen great at being a deacon in that role, uh, the minist- ministering the way he needed to there, but he also did great wonders and miracles among the people. Uh, even he was a gifted teacher or, or preacher. We, we can understand that uh, from verse 9 because he had been communicating to a particular group of Jewish people called the synagogue of the Libertines or the freedmen, people that um, were Jewish, but they were from other places. They were still Jewish. They hadn't converted to Christianity. These, these people who would end up accusing him, Jewish people who were not believers, few different places outside of Israel. That was where they were from. And they did not care much for the gospel that Stephen preached. Verse 9 and 10 says that while they disputed with Stephen, they were arguing with him, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. See, the Lord Jesus Christ gave Stephen the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel in such a way that these men were speechless. They were completely unable to refute him. You know why? He spoke truth. Because <laughs> he spoke truth. He spoke Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and, and, and the life. 
And we learn at the beginning of verse 11 what they did and what people like them have to resort to whenever they're confronted with truth, when they don't like what the truth implies. It says they suborned men, verse 11. Uh, suborned is an old King James term for bribed to lie. So they did just what they had done before when they arrested and tried and crucified Jesus. And the rest of verse 11 gives their defamation of Stephen, their false accusation. They said, uh, we heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Had he? I promise you he hadn't. It might have been blasphemous to them, <laughs> according to their incorrect view of Scripture. Let me give you this example. If you were to um, meet a Muslim today and have a gospel conversation with them, tell them that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he's the Messiah, that he is the only Savior that God has sent for our sins. If you were to tell them that the prophet Muhammad was just a human being who was terribly wrong about God, you would be accused of blasphemy by them, just like they were doing here with Stephen. Now, I'm sure Stephen had said some things that they didn't much care for. In verses 13 and 14, these liars testified that he had also said things against the temple, this holy place, and against God's law. Well, I bet he had. Because that's what Jesus said. He just said what Jesus said. That the Jewish religious leaders, they had turned the temple into an idol in their lives. I bet Stephen preached that, that obedience to the law of Moses couldn't save because it was never intended to save a person and that Jesus Christ was the perfect fulfillment of the law. None of that's blasphemy. It's just gospel truth. Like literally, it's gospel truth. Know this, Jesus follower. In a world that's apart from Christ, they will always see truth as blasphemy. They might call it hate speech or intolerance whatever you want to call it. And for this, Stephen elicited defamation from them. These people paid to lie and twist what he had said. In verses 12 and 15, it tells us that the deacon Stephen was arrested. He was brought before the Sanhedrin to stand trial. Um, to some degree, this is a new development here this time. I mean, we've seen them be brought before the Sanhedrin a few times now. <laughs> Um, but previously, the persecution that the church had faced was limited because popular public opinion was on their side. That's not the case here anymore. Um, even last week, when we looked at the guards who went to arrest the apostles a second time after they got out of jail and were back in the temple preaching, it says that they were pretty kind and gentle when they came to get them because they feared the response of the people. But not, not this time. Verse 12 says that those defaming Stephen, they'd stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And listen, if you're a follower of Christ, you cannot let popular opinion be your guide for how you're going to think or what you're going to say or what you're not going to say or what you're going to do or what you're not going to do. Because popular opinion is much too easily shaped and it changes too quickly. A week before people screamed, crucify him to Jesus, a week before they had sung praises to him. 
welcoming him into Jerusalem as their Messiah King. Um, we must never let popular opinion shape the vision or the focus or the actions of the church of Jesus Christ. Because we've got a more sure foundation, don't we? We've got a more sure foundation. It doesn't change. It's rock solid. It's eternal. It's sufficient. It's perfect. It's inerrant. It guides us. And when you have truth, and when you share truth, there will be those who don't care for truth. There's nothing more precious to us, though. Nothing. To have and to give. Do you know what it does to a person? It changes them. That's a testimony of every person here who's trusted in Christ as Savior. You did not get saved. You were not born again apart from this. You cannot grow in Christ apart from this. It's transformational. Look at the end of verse 15. With the whole Supreme Court of the land interrogating, accusing Stephen, how is he described? And it says, they saw his face as it had been a face of an angel. Well, what does that mean? Did it look all soft and white like you see on museum pictures of angels? Or was it biblically accurate? Was it had eyes all over the place or something? What does it mean here? I believe what they saw and what God means here is that Stephen's face reflected God's glory. And uh, a, lot like, a lot like the face of Moses back in Exodus when he went on Mount Sinai and spent time with God, and he came down from there, from meeting with God. It says that he had a face that glowed. <laughs> His face just glowed with the glory of God to, to the point where the people were like, can you, can you veil that? Can you cover it up? It's a little unnerving for us. That's what having truth, that's what giving truth should do to a person, uh, to the point that it even changes their physical appearance, uh, that they have a different countenance because they, they have a different confidence and this confidence comes from the perfect peace. That someone who knows God and who trusts in God has a, a person who's so close to God that the glory of God is reflected in them and on them because they just live in his presence. How do we live? We live in his presence because they just live in his presence. We're going to learn more about that confidence um, that Stephen had. That was a result of him being full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost and full of God's grace and power next week. But this morning, God's word has taught us what we are to do, how we're to respond to any division that might creep up in the church. Don't let the problem go unaddressed. Take it to the proper people who God's designed and called to handle it. Um, we have his Holy Spirit with us. God has blessed this church with so many humble and wise, godly men and women who can provide direction to diffuse any division and who can get us to a place where we can continue to work together to ensure that our mission continues, that the mission that's a go keeps going. And you might not be called to serve as a deacon, but, but that's just one example of the vital and necessary roles that we must have filled with Holy Spirit-filled people if we're going to do what God has called us to do. Are you active in ministry? Is God moving you to get more involved or in some specific area so you can use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you to help us accomplish a mission that he's given all of us? And Christian, stand on truth. There's nothing that's more important. Uh, to stand on it, you have to know it. You have to be in it. God's given it to you. So be in his word. It's our life. 
That's how God's word describes it. Jesus said when he himself battled temptation that we live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you? God's word is where life is. So are you living in it? It's truth. Are you standing on it? Are you standing for it? Is God's word how you enter presence, the presence of God and commune with him? And the more you do, the greater the transformation will be. Does the confidence that comes from his truth, does it come across on your countenance like it did for Stephen? Is the glory of God so reflected in your life that it shines from your face? I asked Tommy to come and lead us in a time of invitation to respond to God's word. And I just ask, however, the Holy Spirit of God has used the word of God to call you to respond today that you just obey.